Well, I love that. I think St. Patrick's Day, it's a harbinger of spring, time of hope, and the whole month. And I liked the editorial in the Irish Voice, which said, St. Patrick, the perfect antidote to banish the gloom is the joy and fun of marching up and down, back and forth across America. That was the voice of Ted Smith, former diplomat, C-suite executive, and one of the most interesting voices on the politics of Ireland and America. And my name is Martin Nutty, and you're listening to an Irish Stew check-in bonus episode. This episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by the Irish Heritage Tree Program. Celebrate your Irish roots by planting native trees for family and friends in the beautiful Golden Vale of Ireland. Go to irishheritagetree.com and use the exclusive discount code today. It's irishstew10 for 10% off. That code again is irishstew and the numeral 10. Keep the heritage of Ireland green and growing by going to irishheritagetree.com. Hi, folks. This is uh, Martin Nutty with the Irish Stew podcast, and you're listening to a catch-up episode. And I'm delighted to have Ted Smith back with us. Ted joined us last year. We released his episode on February 15th last year. If you want to get a hold of that, it's season two, episode two. But we're here to talk to Ted about a narrower topic set. And so with that, Welcome, Ted. Good to have you back on again. Martin, it's a thrill to be back with you. You've continued to grow and prosper. I loved your epic museum with Patrick and Morris. Great stuff. And Sean O'Connor, you're really covering a lot of ground and adding enormous value to all of us. It's great to have you back on, Ted. And really, in this conversation, I wanted to talk about two general areas. First, in a very broad way, the state of the American polity, as you see it one year on from our conversation uh, of last year. And secondly, I want to talk about what's going on in Northern Ireland, specifically the Northern Ireland Protocol, that combined with Brexit, obviously those two, th- two things are interlinked. So I'm just going to lay the groundwork a little bit by directing you back to a point where you and a number of other folks in the Irish-American community got together to form Irish-Americans for Biden. Now, by training, you're a diplomat, uh, and, and diplomats generally don't take sides in politics, but now you're a retired diplomat, so you have that opportunity. But I want to understand a bit about what led into that and how you saw it. The committee, I believe, was set up sometime in early 2020. Am I correct? That's correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, we were talking about it in 2019, and um, a bunch of us had worked in previous campaigns. I'd worked in the uh, Hillary campaign as well, although it was it was not purely Irish-American. It was more wide-based. But uh, a lot of us had looked at the vote, Irish-American vote, in presidential elections. And of course, it's always a split down the middle. And uh, if you go back even in history, except for some exceptional circumstances, it's split down the middle. So we felt that there was a lot to play for. And here we had uh, Irish-American Catholic president and uh, candidate, and we've got to make sure people know who he is and get the vote out for him. That would be very important. So 
some of the key people were Kevin O'Malley, former U.S. ambassador to Ireland, and of course, Brian O'Dwyer, needs no introduction. Brian Midlinchy, for a very close friend of Joe Biden, now our honorary consul in, in Delaware. Of course, the irrepressible Neil O'Dowd, Stella O'Leary, Irish-American Democrat, she's the head of that group. Kieran McLaughlin, who is former Ireland Funds, now a big business leader, and John Fitzpatrick, Fitzpatrick Hotel. So we had a very good core group, and we were able to call upon a lot of friends in a lot of communities and cities. And we actually used online, like yours here, to reach out to people that we might never have been able to reach before by just having physical meetings. So there's a lot of momentum in that. We've kept in touch since. We'll gear up again for the midterms as we get closer this summer, and then obviously for the presidential election that follows. But, um, you know, if you look at the Irish-American vote out there in Pennsylvania, for example, very few thousand votes win that either way. And we reckon that we won the Irish-American vote 52 to 48. And sometimes it goes the other way. And this time, I think with Hillary, I think it did go the other way. So it's interesting because, as I understand Irish-American history in the United States, the Democratic Party was where Irish-Americans the 19th century hooked into. But it seems, I guess, in recent decades, that vote has been more spread, much more equally across the two parties. What needs to be done to bring it back? Well, yeah, just a sentence on what happened to it. William Buckley, Bill Buckley, a conservative Irish-American, started the National Review in the 50s. And he began to lay the groundwork for Reagan and, of course, the Reagan Democrats. And you could ask yourself, why did a lot of Irish-Americans become Reagan Democrats in the 1980s? And it was a combination of economic anxiety. Blue-collar jobs were disappearing, ironically, thanks to Reagan's industrial policy and, and cultural alienation mistrust of elites. And that last part I can identify with. You know, if even if you just take colleges, universities today, what do they boast about? They boast about their rejection rate. They say, oh, we, if we have a 94% rejection rate, what, what sort of uh, boast is that? So it means that a lot of young kids are encouraged to apply to get rejected. That creates, I think, enormous mistrust with families, middle-class families across the country in many, many ways. And it's wrong. And so there are many things the elite do looking down on working class people, uh, blue collar people, that needs to stop. And uh, we need to start addressing the real needs. And this is where Joe Biden comes in and people like Connor Lamb. And during the campaign, if somebody came up with an idea for a policy or whatever, we'd always say, does this work in Pennsylvania? What do Irish Americans in Pennsylvania think? And it was a very good filter to look at anything. And so what you need to come up with are things that excite people in that community, like good jobs, secure jobs, and not just part-time jobs that already pay for the gas to put in your car to go to work. That's very important. And healthcare and home care. These are the things that people worry about. But frequently we get diverted off into cultural issues, identity issues, and to me, that's a loser in so many parts of middle America. Let me ask you this, just picking up on that point of distinguishing between, call it kitchen table issues, what's playing out a lot in national media in Washington, D.C. right now, 
is this January 6th committee. Is this a distraction? Is this potentially going to hurt the Democratic Party to overcome the steep odds that they appear to be facing right now in the midterm elections? How do you feel those pieces fit together? Yeah, the poll numbers are, you know, bad right now. And I was doing a Joe Biden Democratic uh, Party balance sheet while I was getting ready this evening for and against. And if you look at January 6th insurrection, I'd put it right down the middle. It could work for the Democrats, the extent that Republicans are calling an insurrection a legitimate political discourse, to the extent that some people worried about economic issues may say, well, let it go. We've heard enough about that, and we've heard enough about Trump. What are you going to do for me? And that was the thing that happened in the, in the Virginia election, which everybody was tearing their hair out when Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate, was beaten by the hedge fund guy, Glenn Youngkin. Wasn't very, by very much. It was enough to worry everybody. How could something like that happen? And so that's, that was a, a wake-up call. So what do, you know, what, what's against Biden right now? Well, the f- one thing that's against him is a 50-50 Senate, an absolute tie, and there's a limit to what he can get done. Well, he needs to go out there, and so do Democrats, and talk about what they have done. One trillion dollar bill to build back bridges and roads and put money into workers' pockets right across the country. One trillion dollars. It's an enormous amount of dollars. It's billions and millions across the country. And then two trillion trillion dollars for an economic stimulus plan. So that's three trillion dollars, and we've hardly heard any talk about it. We've only heard talk about what hasn't happened, which is the build back better thing. So that's a major messaging mistake that they've made. I think if they get back to talking about where this money is going to be spent in each community and talk about and turn up with various members of the cabinet and local Democratic candidates and Joe Biden, and Republicans have to stand up there as well and say, yeah, we welcome this money for our state. Of course they do. That's That would be number one in my thing. And then the second one would be to hope that COVID continues to uh, die down. Its persistence and COVID fatigue have been a real negative. And so the sooner that goes away, I think the better. And then with inflation, that's, that's a bad thing for Democrats as well. But again, you just ha- you can't deny it. You're just going to have to say we're going to work as hard as we can against it. And but we know it's we know it's a uh, it's a loss. Now, when you talk to friends in Ireland right now, and they're looking in on the American political situation. How do you explain to them what happened in January 6th and the lack of, what seems at this point, lack of political consequence for the Republican Party? Because initially when we talked, it seems many members of the Republican Party had rejected, let's say, Donald Trump's ambivalence about what was going on that day. But now everybody seems to have fallen back in line. Yeah. It is. It's inexplicable in many ways, Martin, and uh, and I think it's a great shame. And yes, we can't forget it. And somehow or other, the process needs to work through the Department of Justice. And I think rather than making it into a political thing, the prosecutions just need to keep going ahead, and the people need to be prosecuted for breaking the law, which they did. Um, but on social media is not our friend because there's so much disinformation out there about what happened. I don't know how you win that battle. There was one activist I heard last week saying that the Republicans are lying 
like a bad toupee. And that's mm-hmm. where their lies are that bad because I think they're succeeding in many ways in convincing half the voters of of inaccuracy of the fact that this was somehow or other a civil rights gathering and not an attempt to overturn a legitimate election. People are overseas, our friends, democratic friends in Ireland and in Europe wonder where what's happening to America. And at a time when China and Russia are rattling their sabers and it makes it hard for people to trust that if, if Trump were to be reelected, would America be with them? Would it still be standing up for democracy and freedom in the world? Uh, you know, it is a time of existential angst in many ways, but we all have to be optimistic in the sense that, as John Lewis, the, the late John Lewis always said, you have to keep working, getting good trouble, make some noise. I, the line I prefer is the one from Seamus Heaney, where he says, hope is not optimism, which expects things to turn out well, but something rooted in the knowledge that there's a good worth working for. And I think that's where we must net out. And I think Irish people need to know that there are many Americans working to preserve democracy in a genuine way, and that we will prevail. Some people I've had conversations with have posited the notion that American democracy is on the ropes, that it may have been fatally damaged, fatally destabilized by the events leading up to January 6th, and even more the events that follow January 6th. How would you go about convincing folks otherwise? Is that too bleak a view? I think it does go back to what we tried to do in the presidential election campaign was show that democracy can work for ordinary people and that it isn't just something for elites. And that pain that people are feeling, yes, is a result of mistakes made by Democrats and Republicans going mad with free trade, taking away protections for workers and not building any in and ignoring uh, the plight of blue collar folks for many years uh, who saw you know, their wages uh, going down and down and ending up with uh, barely able to support a family and afford a house. We have to get to the fundamentals. There's massive inequality in this country. But in a funny way, the people who are most suffer from that vote for the party, the Republican Party, which passed massive tax reductions for the rich and are against any sort of taxes on the rich that might pay for a, a more level playing field. So you know, that's that's just one of these contradictions. But Democrats just have to keep putting out their candidates who will represent ordinary people and whom people feel, you know, like them and share their pain. And I think we'll we'll get there. So it's it's a heavy lift. We may lose the Senate this time around in the midterms. I'm hopeful on the House. Why? Because I think the gerrymandering that's taking place is, you know, taking place on both sides. Democrats have put forward a bill to stop gerrymandering. Republicans voted against that. And um, so Democrats' reaction is, well, if there's a knife fight going on, I'm not going to come unarmed. I'm going to protect myself. So we may be able to hold the House, but if we lose the Senate, that will certainly be a major setback for any major achievements in in the remaining two years of Joe Biden's administration. So 
I want to switch the focus to across the Atlantic, specifically to Northern Ireland. You're in the room when the are were heavily involved uh, with the Anglo-Irish Agreement mm-hmm. back in the 1980s. Right now, we're after coming through a period where Brexit seems to have destabilized the situation in Northern Ireland. The New York Times had an article today titled Upheaval in Northern Ireland with Brexit at its center, making the case that the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is basically a way of dealing with this, if you will, virtual border in the Irish Sea, is causing enormous problems destabilizing that particular part of Ireland. How do you see things playing out going forward? Yeah, I saw Mark Landler's piece, and he's a very good reporter, Irish background, by the way, mm-hmm. based in London. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was a little bit on the negative side, because what, what the British government and Irish government assure us is that despite the fact that Paul Given resigned as first minister and therefore Michelle O'Neill, the Sinn Féin number two, had to resign, the executive ministers are all remaining in place. And the Assembly, the Northern Ireland Assembly, is working on important legislation and will can continue to do so right up to the election season, which is uh, May 5. So we can keep things going along, helping people of Northern Ireland have a better living and so forth. And the issue on which the DUP are trying to get people to become more divided isn't real. That's to say... The remaining negotiations over the Northern Ireland Protocol, arranging for market access to Northern Ireland, to the European Union and to Britain, are pretty well concluded and in a way which benefits Northern Ireland enormously. Trade between Liverpool and Belfast that on that shipping line has, has increased enormously in the last few months because of that access. So this is something to be cheerful about. As the article itself implied, however, the long, the, the, it's really a stunt by the DUP worrying about the election outcome. You know, demographics are destiny. And it may be that Sinn Féin will emerge as the larger party, in which case Michelle O'Neill becomes the first minister. So that is facing into that. I'm hopeful that enough unionists and loyalists will say, This isn't worth taking to the streets about. Let's just continue to play our role, make sure we have parity of esteem, which was guaranteed under the Good Friday Agreement. And nearly 25 years on, we got to make that work for everyone, whether in terms of language or jobs or Bill of Rights. Um, You know, everybody needs it. And I've had the privilege of working on something called the Ad Hoc Committee to Protect the Good Friday Agreement, which was formed in 2019 by about 40 Americans who worked on the Northern Ireland peace process for many years. And we just wanted to make sure that the Brexit withdrawal wouldn't lead to a hard border in Ireland again. And, uh, you know, I like to think that we're bipartisan in America, we're bipartisan in Ireland, we listen to everybody, we expect a lot of visitors to come out, we hope a lot of visitors will come out from Northern Ireland over the St. Patrick's Day period, in Washington. There are five parties in Northern Ireland. We hope all of them will be there. Hope the business people will come out. We can listen to everybody, make sure their voices are heard, and that America will continue to play an honest broker role in relation to the the tension over there and the issues. But boy, do we have a lot of work to do to ensure power sharing and to achieve what John Hume always called unity of the heart, not just unity of the soil.
So you mentioned the fact that there's five parties in play in the upcoming elections in May. The DUP, for American listeners, would represent, I would say, one extremity of the political pole, with Sinn Féin being its opposite number at the other end, and then these other three parties would lie somewhere on the spectrum in between. Is there more of a possibility for, let's let's call them more centrist parties going forward, or what's your read of how this will play? That's a good question. Uh, very good question. And some people are saying that the old binary politics are, <clears throat> shall we say, diminishing in Northern Ireland. I think it's still too early. And also it depends on what the issues are. I think if it's just bread and butter issues, you'll find that people are more concerned about their community and will vote for parties that are reaching out to each other, such as the Ulster Unionists, the SDLP, the Alliance Party, those three, um, and not just taking positions either for the British Union or just for United Ireland, but for an agreed Ireland, uh, a shared Ireland. So that's that would be my hope, certainly, that we could elevate politics and democracy to that level of uh, sophistication in a way, so that people vote their economic interests. And in some ways, Irish people are better at voting their economic interests than some Americans. They can see past the uh, politics of division and say, what do I want? I want security. I want my children to be able to get a good job. I don't want people to have to emigrate again all the time. And I want respect for my position, who I am, and I'll respect the other person. But it's mutual respect. So is there some lessons for Americans maybe to take from Northern Ireland right now in the sense of what you're describing is a polity in, in Northern Ireland that is less susceptible to being distracted yeah. if you will, by what you would call cultural issues, or, I'm going to double barrel this question, are there certain people at the extremes of the political polarity in Northern Ireland that will seek to destabilize this, this situation, to continue to maintain their relevance yeah. on the lead up to this election? What are we looking for? Well, I think the Democratic Unionist Party were very worried by polling that showed that they had lost support the middle ground and so they're searching around for an issue in which to mobilize and uh, they would say don't waste your vote on these other people vote for us so we can be bigger than Sinn Féin and of course Sinn Féin will say don't waste your vote in the SDLP and the alliance vote for us so we can be bigger than the DUP then you're into binary but if people say look coalition is what matters going forward if we can build a coalition of the reasonable, so to speak, that would be uh, a very good way forward. And to some, you know, to some extent, the Irish government, British government, American government have got to encourage a politics in Northern Ireland that is made up of coalitions and not just one group takes all, as it were, the tyranny of the majority, which Northern Ireland suffered from for 100 years. We don't want to replace the tyranny of the unionist majority with the tyranny of the Republican majority. So it's a tricky one, a very important part of conflict resolution. But I do like your thought that instead of American academics going to Belfast and teaching conflict resolution, 
maybe some folks in Belfast could go to Washington and teach conflict resolution. I suppose that's a more optimistic view of, of how things will play out. You know, we're sitting in America, February 10th. It'll be interesting to see how things play up to the lead up in the local elections there in in May. Fingers crossed that things will go well. Yeah. Now we're going to release this episode, Ted, on, on the lead in to St. Patrick's Day. So wonder if you've got any thoughts on that this year. Well, I love that. I think St. Patrick's Day, it's the harbinger of spring, time of hope, um, the whole month. And I liked the editorial in the Irish Voice, which said, St. Patrick, the perfect antidote to banish the gloom is the joy and fun of marching up and down, back and forth across America. And I'll certainly be out there marching, at least with the Irish Business Organization, probably with behind the NYU pipe band as well in Glucksman Ireland House. So I'll have to be up and down a few times. No doubt you yourself will be up and down as well. But it's a... It's a joyous time. We'll be coming together after many years and during COVID, coming out, and I think a little bit of optimism, hoping to get as many people together as possible and make life better for everyone. And so I, I couldn't agree more with you in that it's been, it'll be three years now since we've had a meaningful St. Patrick's Day in New York, and I think we're all looking forward uh, to getting together with old friends and hopefully new friends and enjoying that special day. And with that, I'd like to thank you for coming back on and giving us your viewpoint on the developments of the past year. It's always a pleasure to speak to you, Ted. And it's always a pleasure and uh, good luck and every success going forward, Martin, with Irish Jew. It's been, I look forward to continuing to be one of your more avid fans and listeners. Thank you. Hey, it's Martin again. I hope you enjoyed that catch-up episode with Ted Smith. If you did, please share the episode page on your social media. You can find all our episode pages at irishstewpodcast.com. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Cahalo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com. <laughs>